My name is Terrell Jermaine Starr, founder and host of Black Diplomats. And my very special guest today is Selena Cesar Chavan, a Canadian politician, businesswoman extraordinaire, you name it. She served as a member of parliament in the House of Commons from 2015 into 2019. And so we know that year when she resigned and we're gonna talk more about that, but also you're a member of the Liberal Party that's led by current Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And you're gonna to talk to us about that experience. But like I said, you're also a businesswoman. You worked as a international research consultant. And so you're more than your elected official experience, you're everything. And so because you're everything, you're on Black Diplomat, so how are you? I'm so good. Aren't most Black women a little bit of everything and just a lot of something at the same time, so. It, it, well, yeah, it, it, exactly. And so, and I and definitely, we gonna talk about that. So I just, you know, we, we're, we're definitely gonna talk about the fact that at one point you're the only Black woman in, in the Canadian Parliament. We gonna talk about that. And also we're gonna talk about just being black in Canada, but also, you know, you're the fact that you immigrated to Canada uh, from, you know, like from Grenada. And so you're going to really help us to tap into black folks curiosity, especially here in America, because right now you see all of our uprisings. Right. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of us are reimagining what does our peace and security look like outside of America. And a lot of people are looking at those benefits up in Canada. But because you're up there <laughs> yourself and you dealt directly with these issues, including COVID-19 and healthcare, you know, we're going we gonna to break that down. But um, but just basically how just how are you maintaining your spirits through this time? So, you know, it's been it's been, I think, a trying time to be in COVID and to be socially isolated as as black people, as a black woman. Uh, in the summertime, so there's there's a there's a lot of layers here, right? It's socially isolated in COVID in the summertime, and then you have this explosion of racial tension where everybody it seems like and their their grandma wants to either call you to find out how you're doing or to call you to ask you how to help fix their problem of racism in their house community organization whatever, so. It's been it's been it's been sort of a a struggle a pull. I heard someone today. It's like they they bounce between you know this sort of I'm okay and depression, and it just kind of oscillates between the two. And I think that's the way of life for most of us at this point. I, I want to really introduce folks to who you are, and I want to delve into. Your, you know, your time as a Canadian elected official, mm -hmm. right? And being under and being in the Liberal Party, because there are a lot of things that come to our mind when we think liberal. And <laughs> that was not always your experience, but just tell us how you became an elected official and a member of the Liberal Party. Right. So uh, as you alluded to in my introduction, I owned a very successful uh, healthcare based research management firm. And so the, for the first time ever in February of 2014, I decided to uh, become a member of a political party. And the Liberal Party is akin to the Democratic Party in the United States. So I became a member for the first time in February of 2014. And then on March 8th, International Women's Day, I got an email from the party saying, do I know a woman who would be successful and could lead Canada in the next, help lead Canada as part of the next government? And I thought, you better believe I can. So I, I decided to run. What is it like to raise money as a candidate for office, especially a black woman? Initially, what you actually need to run an election in Canada, which is very different from the United States, is about $120,000. When I decided to run in 2014, the current member of parliament passed away. And so there was a by-election and I lost the by-election. But because there was a by-election, I was the only election basically run in the country, the entire party. So it would be like the, all of the Democrats like descending into Whitby. Whitby has a population of about 130,000 people. They'd never elected 
a black person, a person of color in any level of government. So this was a this was huge for for this district, to be honest, uh, first black person elected in this whole uh, district. So the the party descended and, and we had a little bit of money after that because they raised money nationally to make sure that I won. And so in the general election, we started with about $30,000 and I had to fundraise the rest. I think the difference between what I did as a fundraiser is that I didn't really fundraise as a quote unquote politician. I fundraised based on what I knew black people would pay money. They would pay $10, $20, $100 to do. And they'd pay $100 to have a good party. And they'd, have a, they'd pay 150 to party with me. And so we, we would throw these amazing parties. There would be no political speeches. I'm not talking about the budget. I'm not doing any of that kind of stuff. I'm just there with a rag and my sneakers and we're fetting. And we managed at the end to have enough money to run another election. We raised over well over $120,000 in that time. Wow. It's a lot of things that you're talking about. These small donations is very similar to here in the United States, because in America, there is not for a lot of reasons with racism and and, and access to large, the good old boy networks uh, that there's not a culture, a robust white mainstream culture of giving within our community to political campaigns. Mm-hmm. And I could assume that it's kind of a similar situation in Canada. Right. And and I think that's the thing. You know, we could get some of the establishment to donate out of the fact that they are liberals or they are Democrats and they always donate. But it wouldn't have been enough to generate the type of funds that I knew I was going to need. And I didn't want to be tapping people in the same the same way that everybody else was tapping people to donate. And the other thing I knew is that I I could draw from a much bigger, more diverse crowd because I wasn't doing politics the same way as everybody else. I, I signed up to do politics differently. And that meant every single part of my strategy, including fundraising, needed to be different. I needed to be aligned to something that was authentically myself. And that included, you know, boat cruises or... Uh, you know, renting out a or uh, renting out a a art gallery and having a a art show, you know, a black owned art show, and and I, I didn't advertise it as black owned, but when people showed up, they got a different experience from someplace that they probably had never been to before, and we're in a black owned art gallery, music is playing, foods being served, and it's a chill vibe. But I'm raising money for a political campaign because I think that in and of itself is a political statement. So you got in in 2015. What was it like being in parliament as the only black woman? So that is that was a challenge. Uh, That was a challenge right from the beginning. When I was sworn in, I was sworn in in a room in parliament in in Ottawa called the reading room. And in that room, there is this huge picture of the fathers of confederation and you know i'm i'm oblivious to it because my back's to that picture as i you know i have my hand over and i'm being sworn in and the the clerk says that every single person who has been a member of parliament has written their name down in this book in history and my my uncle is sitting there and my father and my mom and you know they're all looking and they're thinking like the audacity of this this girl who comes from grenada She's, you know, she's this bold. She's, I'm wearing this leather dress with this faux fur and these high heel shoes. I'm not, I'm not looking like your traditional politician. And I'm swearing, I'm getting sworn in under this huge, like actually obscene picture of the Fathers of Confederation above my head, all these white men. And my, my uncle looks at me and says, the audacity of you to the boldness of you to to do that you know how hard this is going to be and i was like well bring it on because it's it's going to be a long four years and it was it was tough if there was the i felt the structural violence that was baked into the walls of that place the policies of of the immigration policies that that prevented black people from coming into canada um the 
the racism that was in that place, I, I felt as I felt as I was walking down the halls and only had, you know, a lot of white old men staring at me as I'm walking through, kind of looking at me like, how did you get here? Because this place wasn't even designed for women, let alone for you. So it was, um, it took me a couple of years to really get my feet under me and to decide that this place wasn't going to make me, I was going to make this place work for me because it wasn't designed for me in the first place. I hear you. So what were those first few weeks or months like when you're trying to get legislation developed and passed and working with your colleagues? So that was fine. That was fine. And, you know, um, I, I didn't have a challenge. I had the respect of my colleagues. I was named parliamentary secretary to Prime Minister Trudeau. So I had the respect of my colleagues. I wasn't challenged in a way that it, it prevented me from from doing the work that I needed to do. In fact, I was quite, we were passing some pretty distinct legislation at the time, medical assistance in dying and other pretty political or politicized pieces of legislation. And I spoke to them quite honestly and candidly at the, at the microphone and caucus and otherwise, and earned the respect of my, my caucus colleagues. I think for me, it was less about the legislation because I knew I could either vote on that, I'd read it and vote on it. We had a majority government. I was very much in line with my values, were very much in line with the liberal policy, so I didn't worry about that. What I was more worried about was the, the feeling that I had that while I was there. There, was, there were several instances that happened that took me by surprise, you know, um, not being allowed access to the buildings, uh, you know, being questioned why, why I'm in the space. Um, and this one, this, so for the first few months, you're thinking, okay, no problem. You know, they probably don't, I'm new. They're probably trying to remember, security's trying to remember who, who's here. You know, there's 338 people. But I just kept thinking, if I'm the only one that looks like this, the only dark-skinned Black woman in 338 people, one might imagine that they would look at my face and think, hmm, let me memorize her first because she's going to be easy. Like there's only one of her. And then we'll try to memorize everybody else. And so those moments, those microaggressions, those sort of questioning why you, if you belong in this space, uh, really started to perk my ear up, you know, make me understand what the next few months was going to be like, not from a policy perspective, but from aware, an awareness perspective, a, a, a status quo of changing the status quo perspective and a perspective of doing government differently. Because if they want to see different people in, in government, they have to expect us to show up. And, but when we do, we can't be turned away. But how did it look when someone questioned whether or not you belong? Just take us on one of those experiences, please. So I could give you one experience in two. So I'm entering into Parliament. I'm going through the door, the security door, and I'm going up into the third floor as a parliamentary secretary to the prime minister. So there's a, a, a separate sort of area where the prime minister is with added security. I walk into the building and before I even get to the building, it's, ma'am, can I help you? So, well, yeah, I, I'm a member. And they kind of look at me sort of with an eyebrow and I actually have to pull out my badge and present my credentials. Oh, sorry, ma'am go ahead and go upstairs. A few steps in front of me is a minister, a, a white male colleague of mine, another member of parliament, a minister. He's a few steps ahead. He's with his, his staff. So I'm not walking right up beside him. I walk a few steps behind, a few steps behind him up on the third floor. I get the question, excuse me, can I, can I help you? I said, well, I'm, I'm going into the meeting. Oh, are you here with Mr. Morneau? The, wow. the, no, I'm not. I'm not helping him today. Wow. I'm actually here 
as a member and the parliamentary secretary to the prime minister. And again, showed my credentials. So here's the thing. So I'm, I'm listening. Okay, so you know what I'm listening to is, first of all, explain what the secretary job is. The parliamentary secretary to any minister, but in particular, the prime minister, is like the second in command. So, you know, if your minister is not available to attend meetings, events, um, do anything, you step in, right? So I'm the, the tag team of... Justin Trudeau of our of our prime minister. So you work together with him closely. In, yes. <laughs> okay, but no, no, I I get it. But what I'm saying is that for, I can only assume. Were you the first black person to be the secretary to the prime minister? No. So in 1980, Jean Augustine was the first was the first black woman to be a parliamentary secretary to prime minister, and I'm the second. You're the second. Yeah. I would assume that would make the news. Yes. I would assume that your face would be on television screens and people would be familiar with you, yet they're still asking. That just seems like it's if if they, they would have remembered you if they had an intention to remember you. And and it's not just that, Terrell. Like I, I want to be very clear that there was a there was an incident on Parliament Hill a few years ago where, where there was a sh- a shooter and security was actually beefed up in order if something like that happened again that they were they memorized all the members so that there, if there was a problem members could be secure so could you imagine if something were to happen as I'm walking up the stairs behind you know another colleague they grabbed him they pushed me out of the way right. you know, get out of here right. you know? like hey no save me too no lady get out of here I'm like but I'm a I'm a member Meanwhile, I'm being like, you know, stampeded on by people running out of there. It's like, forget about her. Let's save that guy. And so that, when, when you actually think about this, so imagine you, that being your job, and you saying to a white male colleague, look, I'm not even bother to remember who you are. You'd be fired. Like, this kind of stuff does not, we, we don't take this kind of stuff easy because we know we don't have second chances. We know we don't have the capacity to slip up and say, oops, I didn't recognize so-and-so. You know, this is part of your job. And I'm, I'm sorry, but I didn't ask for the job to memorize 338 people. You did. So remember them. A- absolutely. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. When I go back to my earlier point about the Liberal Party, which you'll get into and explain what that means because the same language is used in Europe, you know, in, in uh, England, for example, a few other countries. Justin Trudeau, I remember when he was first elected, he was the bay, right? That's so to speak. Everybody's, oh, he's so attractive, so handsome and everything. And then when issues with minority groups came up with indigenous people, <laughs> namely, and we realized that this man was not as liberal as we thought he would be. And so what was it like being in parliament during times when you had all these issues coming up with indigenous land and, and, and racial, racial discrimination? So it's interesting. So I, I, I need to set the context for your listener is that I entered in 2015 as a liberal but when I exited politics in 2019, I had left the liberal benches and was sitting as an independent. I did not finish my tenure with the liberal party. Uh, the liberal party is much the same, as I said earlier, like akin to the Democrats in the United States, very sort of middle center uh, policy. Uh, but when, when, when I was campaigning in 2015, the tagline was around being bold, transformative, open and transparent government, doing government differently. We got elected with a majority of 180 something, 184, I think, members of parliament. We had a majority. We could have changed Canada's name to whatever we like. We had an actual majority government going and not saying that we had to take advantage of it, but based on the the premise of bold, transformational government done differently. And right from the get-go, there were a couple of of things that happened around 
our vote, our, the, the way in which we we're going to vote, we made a promise to change that. That was immediately broken. There was some, it's some challenges around, um, you know, we, we still don't have clean dr- drinking water in all Indigenous communities across Canada. Uh, we had taken those numbers down, but it wasn't as bold and transformative as I thought it could be. When it came to missing and murdered Indigenous women, there were, you know, report after report, but nothing, we were still, we were still not doing the things that I thought would be, would be representative of a bold and transformative government with a majority. And then I think for me, when it came specifically to the Black community, we wanted to ensure that we got rid of things like mandatory minimums, which we knew disproportionately negatively impacted Black and Indigenous people. So you got mandatory minimums in Canada, too. Yes. Wow. Yes. And we made a campaign promise to eliminate that, and it still has not been eliminated. Why? Why? Because you, have the, you don't have the political will. It, when you start making decisions about legislation based on whether you will be perceived as soft on crime or based on whether you'll be perceived as electable again. That is some kind of nonsense that I can't, I, I, will, not, I will not tolerate that. So in as much as I was trying to speak about that on the inside, when you're, when you're speaking about that through a party st- a structure and saying, no, this is bullshit. You, you said that you were going to get rid of mandatory minimums, make it happen. And you get pushback that says, well, you know, that doesn't poll well or will be perceived to be soft on crime. That's not my problem. That, 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 that's, that's not my problem. When you have people, but that's, the, but that's the same thing here in America. When I deal with politicians, and we're, and we're, but see, here's the thing: we're going to get into it. I got me a little mascal in mind too. So sorry, you're getting me heated now. I'm like, <laughs> I interview elected officials at the highest level here. We're going to talk about the defund the police movement here and how that pertains to Canada. But when you get these folks, these elected officials or candidates running for office off record and you understand how they really feel, you get into this conversation about this fear of being soft on crime, but this goes back decades. And so we had the Willie Horton ads in the United States uh, that were run during the 80s, right? And so we had all of this stuff with Clinton with the 1994 crime bill, which we know was just a disaster. But the main thing that was underpinning his drive to get that through was no one can say that I was tough on crime. Bill Clinton, during his campaign, went back to Arkansas to witness an execution. And it was all for the cameras just so he could prove to the Republicans and to the middle ground, middle America, white America, that he wasn't going to let the Negroes get out of their place, right? And it's just interesting to hear you talk about that same dynamic taking place in Canada. Right. And the, the challenge is, and so, you know, I get people who say, well, Selena, you, should have, you shouldn't have left. You should have stayed at the table. You should have done whatever. And, and granted, perhaps they're right. The, the, the challenge is, though, when you're in a situation, when you're, you're one of talking about the black issues and they're trying to muzzle your your or dampen your voice and you you're tied to so they're muzzling you you're tied to the fact that you're belong to this party structure you you can't really you're supposed to throw the party line and you're supposed, you're supposed to do all these these things and i'm going no i'm not doing that and i'm starting to speak off script <laughs> And they're going, can she not read? We gave her something to say and now she's speaking whatever she wants. And I'm like, no, I'm here to rep. I'm not, I was never elected by the Liberal Party of Canada. I was elected by the people of Whitby. And so that is who I'll represent. I represent them and them alone. And there are some in there that look like me. And there are some in there that voted for me that were not liberal. So I'm going to make sure that I, I do right by them. And I just, I couldn't stay within that, that party system that spoke to one thing here, but were more concerned about being reelected here. That was their priority. They spoke to one thing, but their 
being reelected was was uh, was their driver. And so even though that there was money for the first time ever in Canadian history put towards the black community for the first time ever we have a black woman on the Canadian for the first time ever we had you know all of these these small things like these shiny things are like here you could distract me with the shiny stuff I'm like no we're not we need to get our young people our 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 citizens our black and indigenous people out of being overrepresented in a prison system that you know does not provide us justice. And so don't show me shiny. I'm not interested. I want policy change. That's what I want. Did you share your frustrations with Prime Minister Trudeau? Yes. <laughs> I, I did on a number of issues. Uh, so in 2016, I would say we had a couple of meetings around issues related to the UN decade for people of African descent. Um, and again, under the pillars of recognition, development, and justice, saying here, again, under justice, we made a campaign commitment for mandatory minimums. If we're legalizing marijuana, we should expunge records because the over-surveillance of Black communities led to an over-incarceration of Black people for possession of marijuana. So those records should be expunged. And a number of other issues that fell under procurement of black businesses, we're the largest service provider in, in the country. We should be having um, agreements with black owned business. There was a number of different issues. After that, after 2016, I was not invited to another meeting. <laughs> really? Related to black issues with who who was if you weren't there who was so they so it's interesting because we i was part of black caucus and black caucus is not like the congressional black caucus was like there's a lot of y'all there was six of us that were identified as black in parliament and they would say that they were there were other black men and they would say that they were like Martin and I was the Malcolm. <laughs> How did it feel when they described you like that? Can't you can't make this up? <laughs> and and because it's really odd because Martin, the one that if you really read books, right, was as much as the Malcolm as anyone, but people don't read, right. So so they would describe me as that. So so some of them would go, and then community members would go, and I'd say, look. I am not going to let my ego and the fact that you're not inviting me to meetings get in the way of our community making progress. I'm not going to, I'm going to let my ego get in the way of black liberation because at the end of the day, these individuals are fighting for something. It might not be what I would fight for because I'm going like, I'm swinging for the fences. I want, I want it all. If I'm going to be here, I want it all. I don't want $50 million for the black community because we are what we have a million black people in here. If you give us $50 million, you're saying that, each of worth each of us is worth fifty bucks, like or over ten years. Like that's was that supposed to be our reparations? Child, I don't know what it was supposed to be, but I know it wasn't enough for me. And so, <laughs> so, so when I started speaking out about it, I said they said they came up with a budget that had fifty million dollars for the black community. Again, you know, it's 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 the first time that's ever happened in Canadian history. So. A little bit of kudos, but it's also a big pile of nothing because it don't it doesn't make any sense. We've been here for over four hundred years. We we've done been here, and this is the first time. This is our splash. And so when I when I started making noise about it, my fellow caucus black caucus members said, "Get on board. You can't be you can't be dissing us right now." Okay, let me just ask you a straight up question. There's only so much. There's almost so much fight you could fight. You know. Let me just ask you a straight up question, and and this is as real as I can get it. Is um, did you basically have? Was it basically more like a shut up nigga and, and and get with the program? Yes, but they couldn't do that with me because I had too much. Because by that time, I had such a following across Canada. I had following from people in the states. I had I had a, I had a global. So I had been viral many times. I was featured in Oprah. Like I'm, I'm woman of the year in Canada. Like I have a following. 
So they're, they're trying to sort of quietly tell me to be quiet in very various different ways, telling black elders to come and speak to me and tell me which liberal I would like to be, asking me these like really ridiculous questions, telling me all sorts of stuff from the inside. And then I just finally said, I'm done with y'all. Like you guys, uh, just, I'm just done. So I said, so another thing too, uh, it goes into this, the conversation about being effective. So you right. didn't see Let's your, talk about that. yeah, being a, yeah, yeah. So go ahead. Because to me, there was no space for you to pass any type of legislation that you felt would have any teeth that would be approved. So you are basically rendered ineffective through the people, through, through people within your own party fighting you. I wouldn't say rendered ineffective. I would say, so I put one piece of legislation on the record, which I knew wasn't going to pass. Okay. So it was around ensuring that within the federal system, because there had only been one black deputy minister in Canada's history, uh, there's another one now. So there's two in Canada's history and what, and no assistant deputy minister. So you're talking about like upper management of the federal system in Canada has only had two black people. We've only had four black heads of mission globally. The first woman was appointed in 2018. So I put a piece of legislation on the record, Bill 468, that's called for the federal government to look at the barriers that prevented black people from getting uh, promoted within the federal system. And I, I put things on record because I knew that, and I, I'm, I, you use the word effective. I knew that I was being, I was not effective when I was inside because I had so much pushback and there was not the political will to get things done. And I was limited in as much as I, I said a lot of stuff, I was very limited in what I could say. On the outside, when I'm not tied by a political strings, when I still have that effectiveness and I still have that passion for our community, I could be just as effective on the outside as I can on the inside. Remember, when people say, oh, you left the table, I, I saw the table. I know how it's made. I know who's around the table. I know how to push their buttons. And in fact, I know some of the, a little bit of the inside of what that table, that room looks like. So... The, our effectiveness does not come with the title. Our effectiveness is about being able to galvanize a community towards a mission. And the mission doesn't need Selena to have member of parliament written over my head or a parliamentary secretary over my head. I resigned as being Justin Trudeau's parliamentary secretary. It was an absolute bullshit position. It, there was, there was, it was ineffective. And I, I felt like I was just his little token puppet to at some point say, well, I did blackface, but at least I had a black girl beside me. You're not going to use me like that. Not today. So I think the effectiveness comes from the fact that I know what the table looks like. I've seen it operate and I could be just as effective on the outside, pushing their buttons and making sure that they're, they're, they're grind. I, I grind them around mandatory minimums. I grind them around, um, pardons. I support organizations that are trying to make those things happen. I spoke, I am, um, I reached out to you because a lot of people don't know the real about Canada because with these national uprisings, I've heard several of my friends say, oh, I'm going to move to Canada. And I'm not saying that they have this dream of Canada, but I think when we think about it, we think, okay, the police are not going to kill us to the same degree that they're killing, you know, up in Canada to the same degree that they're killing us here. And they just see a, they feel like their bodies will be respected and honored much better in Canada than here. What would you say to that? I would say the grass isn't always greener on the other side. I would say a name like Defonte Miller. I would say Regis Korczynski Paquette. I would say a number of names of indigenous people who have died on mental health checks with interactions with the police. 
who have been injured, who have had detrimental experiences or interactions with the police, y'all have numbers. So when you're thinking about on a proportional scale, you know, you're talking about 1 million black people to, I don't know how many millions of black people you have in the United States. We have one point. It's like 15 million, about 15 million. Right. So we have 1.2 and you all also consume a lot of oxygen. (laughs) Like, Like everything, but everything on the news is American based. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. It is, there's always a screen showing something happening in America. So you guys not only consume a lot of other people's oxygen, you consume a lot of your own oxygen. So you, y'all are just consuming a lot of oxygen. But when you think about it from a numbers game, 15 to one ratio, you are not gonna get the news about the George Floyds of Canada as you are in the United States. You're not gonna get the fact, and that those names that I mentioned or those incidents are people that had catastrophic issues with the police. When you think about the suspension rates of our children, of black children in our school systems, our school systems are George Floyding our kids by the thousands. When you think about the fact that 40% of children in childcare in Toronto are black children, our social services are George Floyding our kids, by the thousands. When you look at health outcomes for black women, when you think when you think of all these systems that have that have racism embedded in them, are they any different from the United States? No, because they're built on a foundation on a policy that has been racist from the beginning. So what we're seeing is the manifestation of the symptoms of that disease that was implanted a long time ago. So because you're in the United States and you're, you're seeing so much of it, it doesn't, matter, doesn't mean that it's not happening in Canada. It's not happening in France. Like our brothers in, uh, just on the outskirts of Paris, in Ch- like everywhere that black people reside, there, is, there are challenges. And, and I hope I could speak to some other stuff later, but I'll just leave it at that for the question. I think we've all been there. We all think about Langston Hughes, who's one of my favorite all-time writers, um, who went to the Soviet Union to find uh, uh, to try to upstart his writing career because he struggled here. You think about James Baldwin, who's mm-hmm. written extensively about this, this thing about finding relief. And right. as we know, it's not it's it's you can't find it anywhere, but we but but as as much oxygen as we take up in America. A lot of us look literally up to Canada, you know, like as far as our northern neighbor, because particularly with COVID-19, which we can definitely get into, black people are disproportionately dying um, as a result of COVID-19. We're disproportionately dying here, too. Okay. It's happening here, too. Yeah, but yes, but what I'm, yes, I get that. But I think what a lot of folks hear, the way that we look at it is, at least Canada is going to cut us those $2,000 a month checks or however amount of money y'all get. Meanwhile, we just get a one-off and we think about the social services in Canada. So yeah, we may be dying up there too, but at least we'll have better access to healthcare that keep us breathing, right? And, and, and make us breathe oxygen. That's the way, that's the way that a lot of us would think about it. And so I'm just curious about your response. And sure, that is a fair assessment. So for for those that need it, there is a $2,000 a month. For students, there's another pot of money for those who graduated. We have a healthcare system that we that doesn't bankrupt us if we have a baby or if we have cancer. You know, we don't have to pay for that. Um, our, our taxes pay for it, but we don't have to pay for that. I think the the problem that comes with that, and I'm not saying that any one of your listeners this would attribute to them, is the fact that, okay, so we are leaving the United States and we're coming to Canada because at least if they're there, we don't have to like deal with these other issues. So so then what happens? So you have people who can be fighting a system leave one system to be complacent in another system 
that's, that's challenging for me. That's because admittedly, I, I know the privilege that I have. I, I totally understand that, but you still fight that system. You don't leave the system to get, to make it easier to, to fight this. Are you going to fight the system still? I, I don't understand why you're leaving because the, the, the challenge is, is that you guys have the numbers. You, you guys, you guys are starting the conversations around defunding the police and, and, and changing social, like ch- making movements. If you start fracturing or fragmenting, sorry, that, that nucleus, what are we going to be doing? Th- uh, this, we're going to be doing this again. How many years from now? Because, because we decided we're going to move to Canada and we're going to start. No, no, we, we need to figure out a way to fix the systems, plural, in each jurisdiction, United States and Canada. And if in the United States you're starting to have a really profound move that I'm seeing with some of the police forces in some of the jurisdictions, in Canada, we, in Toronto, our largest police force, we just voted down defunding police. So you, you want to come to somewhere better? Better for whom? Because you have a few dollars in your pocket and you can? Better for whom, exactly? Because poor folks that look like us are still struggling. Healthcare workers who look like us, still struggling. People with mental health issues that look like us, still struggling, still dying, still having police walk up in their house, shoot them, or throw them off balconies and say something went wrong. And on top of that, when they're here, our police force, we don't get arrested. We get on paid leave for years and years and years. And your move-in tax money will pay for that. So, for what? When you put it like that, <laughs> it, yeah, it makes you, it, may, it almost makes folks you get a feeling of selfishness almost. Well, I, and I'm, and this is, uh, so that's why I said right at the beginning, like, I don't, I don't want to indict any of your listeners. I'm, I, I just, I just want to get them thinking. My, my job is to not make people feel comfortable. I'm a disruptor. I like people to think about, no matter what side you're on, to think about sort of the consequences of the actions that you take. So, so yes, and, and y- you know, you could say I'm, I'm going to move to Canada because I, I don't have to worry about some of these other things. And, and you'll be well to do so. But will you pick up the fight here? Because the fight is still the same for the people that need us the most. And because we got a few dollars in our pocket and a couple of cars in the driveway doesn't mean that we, that we, you know, we hang up the bootstraps that we, we so eloquently were able to pull up for ourselves all of a sudden. So tell me about how y'all, how you handling everything with COVID-19 because in New York city, for example, in the state, we've been able to really calm things down. Of course, in Florida and in Texas and places that have Looney Tune executive leadership, Georgia, where the current governor, Brian Kemp, has ruled against orders that people have to wear face masks. Literally, he is sending people out to die. He don't give a fuck, right? He's just out there. But how do you feel the Canadians are responding to this from a a public health standpoint versus us? they ain't messing around with that up here. You go outside. We have masks in the car. You have masks in your purse. You cannot go anywhere without a mask. We ain't messing around. We're not interested in dying like you all. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. I don't know if the United States is like, let's see how we could become the world's joke again. Like, I don't know if that's like a competition for y'all. I don't know if this is a thing that you are... Is it a is it a competition? Is this it's like is, is it a bet that nobody else knows about that you're supposed to be perpetually the joke of the world for some reason? I don't understand. But no, we uh, to be honest, from a public health perspective, here in Canada, we are taking this as seriously as a heart attack. You go, you don't go outside. You're not allowed in public spaces without a mask on, especially if you're inside. 
if, if you cannot social distance, you put a mask on outside. If you are, uh, yeah, we're not messing around with that. We are not, let, let's just put it this way. We're not following your lead. <laughs> we're not injecting ourselves with bleach. We're not injecting ourselves with Clorox or anything. We're not taking any made up pills. We are, we are wearing our masks and we're social distancing everywhere. But, you know, a question I'm curious about is, do you have people who are reacting like the Karens of the world where they're in Walmart and just throwing stuff out yes. on the floor and refusing to wear the masks? Yes, yes. We have we have them all over the place. And they're not just the Karens. I think they're the Karens, the Kevins, the... I don't know what their names are anymore. But we have a we have a few of them that are just they're not having it, and either are we. Like we are not we we don't. If you want to try the whole, you are you are start need to stop listening to the 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 truth. You lemons, lemmings, not lemmings, lemons. You lemons, you need to stop. <laughs> what does that mean? What does that mean, though? Oh my god. Who knows? They, these people heard it somewhere and they repeat it. And then they say, you, you lemons, not lemmings, you know, lemons need to stop listening to what's happening. We don't need to wear a mask. And we're like, look, if you want to do that, go across the border to the United States with the rest of your friends. Don't practice that up here. <laughs> you don't say that. Don't, don't practice it. Don't, and don't practice it with me and my children in the store. No way. Put on your mask or get the step in. You don't believe this is the truth. That's good. Build a store. Do whatever you want in it. But if this is a public space and we all up in here, put on a mask or go to the United States. But how is it mandated? Is this something that's done by each region, for example? Or because yeah. United- yeah. It came down from the province and then each region then. So Durham region where I live, has manned it came from the province of Ontario and then sort of like the state, then down to you know the city of New York, which is the the town of Whitby has uh, the region of Durham, and then the town of Whitby has also said you're mandated to wear a mask if you're indoors in a public space or if you're outdoors and you cannot social distance. Okay, wow. And so as a as, as a public health professional, what are some of the disparities or some of the reasons why black people in Canada are being disproportionately impacted. We touched on it before, but do you mind kind of going into from a Canadian perspective why that is? I think it's the same perspectives that it is in the United States. First of all, the uh, the incidents of COVID are increasing or have a hot spot in uh, jurisdictions in Toronto, in particular, that are for underserved communities. Why? Because they're not testing there. Why? Because are they are the people valued there? Like like this is not rocket science. And again, it goes back to the earlier conversation. If 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 you want to move here because things are so much better, like we really need to understand that things are happening in the United States similarly to they're happening in Canada. It's just in Canada, it's on a smaller scale. So yes, the, 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 the reason why we're seeing this sort of gap uh, or, or COVID-19 is causing this further divide is because these kinds of, of ripples or um, traumas that happen, whether we're talking about COVID-19 or let's not put our head in a tunnel here now. Whether we're talking about COVID-19 or we're talking about climate change, it is going to impact the poorest and most vulnerable people on the planet. And most often they look like us and most often they're women and children. So let's not pretend we didn't understand that COVID was gonna have an impact any more than we understand that climate change is gonna have an impact. Because we know, we already know 
who it's going to impact. So if you know that, put the testing and the resources into those communities that you know it's going to impact. But no, they don't do that. Why? Because we're not a priority. Yeah, it's just, it sounds exactly like the same thing to me. It doesn't sound like the same thing. It is the same thing. It is. It is. Yeah, it is the same thing. Precisely, right? Do you know anybody who's been impacted by COVID-19? Just not in my immediate family or not anybody that I know specifically, but through my my social networks, people who have passed away, people who have, you know, especially like our healthcare providers, it's been, it's been devastating. And, you know, personal support workers, people who are trying to, you know, make a living and are having a tough time doing it and then have to double down in a pandemic while people still refuse to wear masks because it's so inconvenient. I didn't ask you this earlier, but what was the difference of working with the Obama administration versus the Trump administration? That's a, that's a night and day conversation. How much time do we have? So let, let's just put it this way. So I'll take it away from sort of the social issues and go back to, for example, trade. When you're talking about trade, you could have a, you could have a relatively intelligent conversation with the Obama uh, president, prime minister, as well as the administration. In this particular case, after the the election of your your president, um, we had to come up with a new strategy around engagement around trade, where we were indirectly talking about trade without talking to your president. So it was all hands on deck, talking to governors, talking to mayors, talking to business leaders, talking to people who we knew would put enough pressure from the outside on the inside. So when you put uh, tariffs on our softwood lumber, we were talking to home builders, we were talking to people who we knew that if you did not buy Canadian softwood lumber, where are you going to get it? <laughs> like, you know, where are you, like, you have 40, 40% of what you need is supplied by us. So why are you going to put a tariff on something that's going to hurt people, Americans, from buying homes? When you put tariffs on steel because we're a national security, what? Canada? National security threat? Like, you're just, you're just not making any sense. So you bypass the middle and you go to the outside to create that pressure. And so it was an all-hands-on-deck move to uh, get everybody else to understand the, the, the value of Canada and how many jobs, what the economy, you know, a lot of the states, their, their economy is, is buoyed by the Canadian marketplace. So it was, it was a challenge and it's, it's night and day. One is where you, you have direct sort of communication in a, a reasonably intelligent manner. And one is with your, like, you try to have reasonable conversations, but you try to avoid them by having other conversations. You still have to engage. Have you ever met Donald Trump? No, no, absolutely not. Um, when, when he was elected, if I wasn't going to resign as parliamentary secretary to the prime minister before when he was elected, I actually, that was it. I wouldn't, I would not be U S facing. I'm just not, I'm just not diplomatic enough to pretend. Uh, so I was then transferred to international development and I was everything but U S facing. I would, I would, there's no, I have no capacity for Donald Trump. So you asked to be transferred so you wouldn't have to deal with them. Yeah. So I sent a letter to the prime minister the day after he was elected. And I said, look, I know you're still going to have to engage, but it's not going to be with me. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put Canada's whole reputation of, you know, trade deals and stuff on the line because I am going to tell somebody to F off. At some, like, it just doesn't make any sense. I don't have, I, like, I, I, maybe, maybe politics is not for me. I'm, I'm totally okay with saying that because my filter is not quite there. And I'm okay with that. But I also know myself and I know myself better than to screw around with, a, with diplomacy when it comes to being tactful around somebody who can't. 
Uh, yes, yes, definitely. Um, who are your sheroes? A lot of black women in the United States. I know a few people have shouted you out uh, for everything that you're doing there. So name some of the black women here in the U.S. particularly who you get inspiration from. Um, so I, I'll name one in particular. Well, Shirley Chisholm for, for sure on bot and boss, like just every time I see like a, even a little snippet of her speaking about, you know, why can't I run for the United president of the United States? Like, it's just, why wouldn't I do that? It's, it's like going to the grocery store, you know, kind of thing, right? It's, it's, why can't we? And then um, Congresswoman Presley, Stacey Abrams, women who decide that they are going to be authentically themselves within a space that doesn't often allow for them to be authentically themselves. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to see the United States in all of its challenge. And, and I have to say, love them or hate them is not the point. Respect, respect Black women when they're in that space. You, you don't, I'm not asking you to love them. I'm asking, like, don't hate them. Don't love them. Just respect the fact that they're there because that work is a different, it's a different kind of beast. It's a different kind of, of hell when you're in that space that is, that nobody wants you there. Even people on your own team, they don't want you there. But you come in here with your bald head for trying to make a statement. No, I, I actually have a disease. Like, I'm not trying to fuck around. I'm just, I'm just trying to live my life. I have a disease. But every single thing that you do is political. Everything. And they're going to talk about you no matter what. And then your community is going to expect. And then other people are going to not expect. And then you're going to expect. And it, it becomes this, this life of its own. And so when they're unapologetically just themselves and they're just like, yeah, I'm going to do this. And they're going to challenge the status quo and they're going to challenge authority and they're going to break glass ceilings, knowing that the glass is going to fall somewhere and they're going to be close to it. And by God, they're going to get cut and they're still going to smash. Man, I love black women. I'm sorry. I just, I just love them all. <laughs> but black women in politics, I have, I have, uh, I have an affinity for them that is like no other. It's just, it's, it's a beast. And I'm not just talking about women who are in politics. I'm talking about women like I, I can't remember. The, it just left my head in the state who they organized that bus ride to go down and vote and Latoya Brown. Damn. Like that, like that is some, that is some stuff right there where you pull what little resources you have together and say, you know what? And this is what I'm talking, this is what I talked about earlier. You do not need the title to make the thing happen. You don't need it. You just have to have a love for your community. You don't even have to, you don't even have the loyalty to it. You just got to love it. Because there's sometimes I'm like, I, I, like, I want to tell y'all, like, bye. Everything black, goodbye. <laughs> there's just some days. But it's, I mean, it's a human thing because, I mean, it's just hard being black. Right. But then you love, you love your community, you love your people, and you love, you love your existence within a greater humanity. Right? So at the end of the day, your community being meaning black community is part of an existence of a broader community. So you love humanity, right? And so like you want to try to fix because if you know, you know that if you do well by black people, you're doing well by everybody. And that's this the problem. Like this is this is the the, the thinking that is so absurd. This is the thing that's so absurd. We don't want to be soft on crime. Well, no, 
Because if you if you actually listen to the policy, if you actually do what is right by black people, you'll be doing right by everybody. Because we ain't trying to hurt nobody. You know what's the the irony of that is if black people were the violent, monstrous people that they thought we were, there would be insurrection after insurrection after insurrection. There would be Nat Turner times a thousand if we were those beasts, right? All day. Yeah. <laughs> they ought to be lucky that we aren't the savages that they think that we are, right? All day. We be going all day. Flick, burn. Flick, burn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, but that just shows that we aren't. No, and, and but but this is just it. And and again, like I don't want to derail from the conversation around, and I'm I'm gonna stick to black women for a, a minute. The most educated demographic in North America right now is a black woman. We will not receive pay equity until 2100 as black women. How is that, how is that possible? How is that possible that we, our, our contribution, we still try to better ourselves irrespective of what is currently happening. And we are never the beneficiaries of our efforts. Why not? And this is why people like people who are who I would consider heroes who just say, you know what? Why not run for president today? Why not? Why not show myself the way I am because of my alopecia? Why not do these things? Why not challenge that last election? Because I deserve to win. And I'm saying. You don't have to love them. You don't have to hate them. But you better damn roll spec them. I know that's right. So I, I want to like kind of close out with how you got to Canada in the first place and just talk about your experience of immigrating there and um, the childhood, what that's like, because that's that's definitely something that a lot of us would be interested in knowing. So I'm glad that you said that because my publisher is always saying, plug your book when you go on things. And I'm I always Yeah, definitely. <laughs> So I'm actually writing my first book called Can You Hear Me Now? It's, good. it's published by Penguin Random House. It's coming out in February 2021, and it is the story of my life, to answer your question. I'm not just shamelessly plugging it. But it does speak about me coming to Canada. Uh, I was left back home when my parents came to Canada. It's not uncommon for kids to be left um, as their parents sort of travel from the Caribbean. And I was left back home. I came to Canada when I was about two years old. And I was, I was bold and bad from the start. Like I was, but I knew like, you know, I used to get in trouble a lot. And the one thing that I, that I didn't get in trouble for was being smart. And so that's the one thing that I kept, like I was wicked smart, but I was in trouble. I, I cussed like nobody's business from the first words that I could say. Really? I, yeah, yeah, I am. I am. You didn't see the sarcasm in that, but that's okay. <laughs> I am bad when it comes to cussing. Um, my mom actually told someone the other day, somebody actually from Canada, while I was a an elected official, called my mother to tell her that you should, you know, you should really tell your daughter to like, you know, kind of calm down and not be so vocal. My mom was like, I've been trying to calm that girl down and control her for 40 years. You, you go ahead and try. <laughs> but honestly, um, coming here, I took full advantage of being smart in our education system and learning. And so the story is about that. But it is, it's a very honest story. I, I, I'm very open about the mistakes that I made. And well, they are quite embarrassing. And I often thought about maybe I shouldn't put them in the book, but I think it's important to put them out there because we usually see this person on this side. You see the Selena who is, you know, she looks like she has it all together and it looks like she just got here. Well, I got here making a lot of mistakes, learning from them. I'm not perfect. I'm very vulnerable with that story because I learned a lot of lessons. I learned how to find my voice and I needed 
other people around me to get me to that point where I, I could give zero bucks, right? And tell off a prime minister. Like, not, not that that's a badge of honor. It's, it's an ability to say, I know how much I'm worth. And I know what my contributions are. And I know what I could do for you if only you would let your ego get out of the way and let me help you. But you don't want to do that. But I've made enough mistakes and I've, 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 done, I've tripped up enough and I've had enough triumphs and success to know how much I'm worth being here. And my navigation through systems in Canada, I don't think is much unlike a lot of people's. I think the difference would be is that in as much as I got into trouble and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, had some difficulties, the perseverance and the resilience, which I think is familiar to a lot of black women, was maintained from day one. And I had a lot of examples of people in my grandmothers, in my mother, no matter how many times she like whoop me to get me on the straight. Um, I had enough examples of people to, to know what resilience looks like and how to persevere and how to always, always be upward mobile and, and reaching for something better and more. Definitely, definitely. Um, so that's, so yeah, that, that's, that definitely, that's wonderful. And, um, so this was a, a very good conversation. I think so. I, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Thank you so much. We've always, I've always wanted to interview you and it's just really a pleasure. And I just feel grateful that you, you even give me your time so that I could talk to you because oh my God. this means a lot to me. You know what, Terrell, you know what? You have, all, you've been the same for me. Following you, following like, just being a part of your journey, being a part of your space, I think for me has been equally rewarding. I'm I'm proud of what you do. I'm proud of the person that you are. Um, this unapologetic sort of larger than life individual who I'm sure has moments of quiet and reflection and silence and um, at the same time decides to forge forward. And I think when we see that in each other, we give each other space and time to be able to to feed each other's energy and you feed my energy. So I, I appreciate you and I, I will do this again. Thanks for tuning in to Black Diplomats. We especially want to shout out our patrons, Mark Lacey, Ashanti Galar, Joanne Cook, and Katherine Yamayanov. If you like this episode, please become a patron at the link in the episode notes. Also, rate and subscribe to Black Diplomats on your favorite podcast platform. The intro and outro music is brought to you by my fellow Detroiter, Tall Black Guy. <laughs>